Episode 2, Chapter 2, Our Divine Legacy. Alexander's Treasure. 300 years before Bellina set hands on the Emerald Tablet, Alexander the Great discovered the original tomb of Hermes. According to legend, the momentous event took place after the Macedonian king had conquered Syria and entered Egypt in 332 BCE. Alexander's new position as a pharaoh gave him access to all the treasures of Egypt, including the revered Hermes' tomb. Convinced it was his destiny to reveal the secrets of Hermes, Alexander headed west across the Libyan desert to where the tomb was located. Before entering Hermes' crypt, however, Alexander consulted the famous oracle of Siwa to make sure the gods favored his decision. So far, it had seemed the gods were behind the conquering hero. The dangerous trip, though, the scorching, excuse me, scorching desert was alleviated by a cool north wind that brought abundant rain and several large black birds and two hissing snakes are said to have guided the caravan to the o oasis at Siwa. Built in 570 BCE, the Egyptian temple at Siwa was dedicated to the supreme god Amen, the Hidden One, whose sacred name is the origin of our own prayer ending Amen. The Greeks identified Amen with Zeus, and two previous or oracles had pronounced Alexander the son of Zeus. After the oracle of Siwa had also declared him Zeus's son, Alexander felt he possessed the vested power to disseminate the teachings of Hermes. The tomb was located just east of Siwa and contained much treasure besides the golden throne holding the avatar's mummified corpse. There were jeweled statues of the Egyptian gods and stacks of scrolls written in the hand of Hermes. Nothing in the tomb, however, rivaled the splendor of the emerald tablet. Alexander's caravan, caravan hauled the contents of Hermes's tomb to Memphis and then north to Heliopolis, where the new pharaoh placed the scrolls in the sacred archives and put the emerald tablet on public display. The tablet was written in an ancient Phoenician alphabet and Alexander ex assembled a panel of priests and scholars to prepare a Greek translation. The enigmatic message and mysterious physical appearance of the Emerald Tablet caused quite a stir. One traveler who had seen it on display at Heliopolis wrote, it is a precious stone like an emerald whereon these characters are represented in a bas-relief, not engraved. 
It is esteemed above 2,000 years old. The matter of this emerald had once been in a fluid state like melted glass and had been cast in a mold. And to this flux, the artist had given the hardness of the natural and genuine emerald by his art. Construction of the city of Alexandria to house the study of the Hermetic text was begun immediately. One of the scholars who moved to the new city to work on translating the scrolls was a scribe from the temple of Heliopolis known as Menetho, whose name means gift of Thoth. It is thought that while translating the documents, Menetho uncovered secret directions to the location of the 9,000-year-old writings of the first Hermes, whom the Egyptians called Thoth. Menetho recorded that he found the ancient scrolls in two magnificent pillars, one located at Heliopolis and the other in Thebes. Egyptian holy books refer to these sacred pillars as the pillars of gods of the dawning light. And they were moved to a third temple where they later became known as the two pillars of Hermes. These splendorous columns are mentioned by numerous credible sources down through history. The famous Greek legislator Solon saw them and noted that they memorialized the destruction of Atlantis. The pillars were most likely what the historian Herodotus described in the temple of an unidentified Egyptian god he visited in Phoenicia. One pillar was of pure gold, he wrote, and the other was of emerald, which glowed at night with great brilliancy. Unfortunately, only a few of Manitho's works survived the burning of the great library at Alexandria in the early 5th century. These include some of the letters to Ptolemy II, in which he alludes to sacred scrolls written by yet a second Hermes and his book Sothis, which describes the great flood and the manuscripts of the first two incarnations of Hermes. After the flood, wrote Manitho, the hieroglyphic texts written by Thoth are translated from the sacred language into Greek and deposited in books in the sanctuaries of Egyptian temples by the second Hermes. Manitho's most important work, the Book of Thoth, has yet to be found. That book was said to be consistent entirely of strange symbols which simulated the reader's consciousness in such a way that he or she could enter the presence of the gods and directly experience the higher reality promised by Hermes. Legend says the book was kept in a locked gold box in the inner sanctuary of the temple at Hermopolis, where the priest at the time was entrusted with the key. In that way, the sacred knowledge passed down from priest to priest 
and was um, and was not generally disseminated among the people. With the decay of Egyptian civilization, so the story goes, an occult brotherhood was formed to gradually reveal the hermetic mysteries to the world. Today, many of those emblems, emblems can be seen on tarot cards and the principles of his emerald tablet are prominent in myths, folk tales, and other literature that was passed down to the people. As for what became of the emerald tablet itself, we can only speculate. After Alexander discovered the tablet in the tomb of Hermes in Siwa in early 331 BCE, it was copied by Egyptian scribes and displayed publicly in Heliopolis. When Alexander left Egypt later that year, and headed north into Cappadocia and Mesopotamia, it seems like he, it seems likely that he took the treasure of Hermes's tomb, including the original tablet, with him. However, it was obvious to everyone around him that whatever happened to Alexander at Siwa had greatly changed him. He started seeing himself as a god and wanted to be treated that way by his generals. But two attempted coups by his officers in 330 BCE persuaded him to concentrate on his military goals. As part of that decision, it is possible Alexander had the sacred items from the tomb stored in a giant underground cavern in Cappadocia, where the community of Tyana later grew up. Afterwards, Alexander moved eastward at high speed, and by 327 BCE, the newly inspired king had conquered all the territory from Babylon to India. But he never returned to reclaim his hidden cache of Egyptian relics. Returning though, Babylon towards Cappadocia in 323 BCE, he died of a fever and was buried somewhere in Egypt. Bellinus rediscovered Alexander's hiding place on the outskirts of Tyana in 32 CE. Around 70 CE, the city of Alexandria became Bellinus' center of operations, and he is said to have written most of the books there. It seems likely that Bellinus brought the tablet with him to Alexandria at that time. After his death in 98 CE, the tablet was entrusted to the Alexandrian libraries. It probably remained in their protection until around 400 CE when it was reportedly hidden somewhere in the Giza Plateau to protect it from Christian mobs who eventually destroyed the great libraries at Alexandria that included Bellinus's original writings. In any case, the Emerald Tablet continued to be a primary document at Alexandria after Alexander departed Egypt, and scholars reportedly issued three revised Greek translations of the copies. The first version, around 290 BCE, resulted from merging the Egyptian, Greek, and Jewish ideas concerning the elements of nature described in the tablet. 
the second, around 270 BCE, reflected Jewish and empiricist views of the role of the fire in alchemy. The last revision, sometime in the last 50 years before the birth of Christ, emphasized the metaphysical methods of transformation revealed in the tablet. Finally, around 300 CE, the tablet became the center of various new Neoplatonic interpretations that attempted to combine Greek philosophy and Arab mysticism with the moral doctrines of Judaism. Translated copies of the Emerald Tablet made their way into Arabia sometime after 600 CE and from there eventually reached Spain and Europe. Alexander's daring trip to Siwa changed not only his own life but the course of the world history as well. With the establishment of Alexandria, civilization entered a new era of enlightenment in which Greek, Roman, Egyptian, and Jewish scholars openly exchanged information and philosophies. By the time the libraries of Alexandria were destroyed in successive burnings by the Romans, Christians, and Arabs, they contained over 700,000 scrolls from around the world. Since Alexandria was the center of world commerce, these new ideas, including the teachings of the Emerald Tablet, spread throughout Europe, Africa, and the Orient. As we have noted, his visit to Siwa caused, oh, excuse me, caused equally profound changes in Alexander himself. The world conqueror had always been torn by questions of whether he was a man or a god. Not only had the oracle of Siwa confirmed his descent from the gods, but the emerald tablet showed him how to use his innate powers to become godlike. What he did not see was how his own ego would contaminate those divine powers. He appeared detached and unconcerned with courtly affairs and even started making prophecies. He had a new coin minted and circulated throughout his vast empire that showed his profile wearing a li the lion skin headgear of Hercules, the Roman Hercules. Hercules was the son of Zeus, an immortal who became a god, and obviously Alexander wanted to emphasize the similarity between them. Later, Alexander had another coin minted that portrayed the ram's horns of Amen protruding from his head. In an even more dramatic departure from tradition, he ordered that everyone who entered his court prostrate themselves before him an act he knew Greeks considered a sign of worship. Alexander's rolling megalomania led to attempted coups by his officers that resulted in the execution of leaders. In the final analysis, Alexander did get his wish to be worshiped as a god. After he died at the age of only 32, divine cults in his honor flourished throughout the Mediterranean states. Shrines and memorials were built depicting him as a god with the ram horns of Amen. 
just as he hoped he would be remembered. Unfortunately for Alexander, at least, the Dionysian cults that grew up around his memory were short-lived. While the egotistical ruler had encouraged the formation of cults in his honor while he was still alive, he probably had the foresight to realize that a new religion in his name would not last. That did not stop him from pursuing his own divinity, though. After he died in Babylon, his body was first moved to Aji in Syria, and then not to his homeland, but to Egypt, land of the immortals. His corpse was interred in a crypt in Memphis and then taken to yet another in Alexandria. And from there, he was secretly entombed somewhere in the desert. Perhaps it was Alexander's final wish that he be buried near the oasis of Siwa in the former tomb of Hermes. Though to this day, no one knows the exact location of the great conqueror's final resting place. Thoth, the first Hermes. Alexander's compelling desire to become a god motivated his search for the tomb of Hermes, whom the Greeks considered the messenger of the gods. Yet the Greeks were not the first to claim Hermes by any means. The Egyptians believed he was the son of the Agathodamon, the great Thoth, the first scribe and god of all learning and hidden knowledge. Thoth is impossible to categorize because he transcends anything we normally think about gods and men. At first glance, he seems a simple personification of the powers of logic, for he was said to be responsible for teaching men how to interpret things, arrange their speech and logical patterns, and write down their thoughts. As the inventor of hieroglyphics, Thoth instituted record keeping and founded the sciences of mathematics, astronomy, and medicine. However, there are clues in the many alternative names for this god of thought from ancient Egypt pap Egyptian papyri that suggests he really represents the ultimate archetype of the word of God creating the universe. Thoth is the source of the word, the one god without parents who precedes all others. He is the soul of becoming whose creative will power fashions reality. What emanates from the opening of his mouth, says an Egyptian text, that comes to pass, he speaks and it has his command. As the reckoner of the universe, Thoth is the source of all natural law. As the shepherd of men and vehicle of knowledge, he is the higher mind in man that provides inspiration and inner knowledge. According to, according to the Ebers Papyrus, a 68-foot-long scroll on alchemy that has been called the oldest book in the world, man's guide is Thoth. 
who bestows on him the gifts of his speech, who makes the books and illumines those who are learned therein, and the physicians who follow him that they may work cures, as the revealer of the hidden and Lord of rebirth, Thoth is the guide to alternative states of consciousness and initiator of human enlightenment. One of Thoth's scrolls, the Book of Breathings, taught humans how to become gods. Usually depicted as a man with the head of an ibis, a waiting bird with a long curved beak, Thoth embodies the rational powers of the sun as well as the intuitive, irrational energies of the moon. The ibis is the Egyptian symbol for the heart, and as the recorder and balancer, Thoth presides over the weighing of the heart ceremony, which determines who is admitted into heaven. Thoth is the final judge who weighs individuals' true words, the innermost intent in all of our thoughts and actions. It has been written that just before the great flood, Thoth preserved the ancient wisdom by inscribing two pillars and hiding sacred objects and scrolls inside them. According to the ancient historian Herodotus, the magnificent pillars were hidden under the heavenly vault, which could only be found by the worthy who would use such knowledge for the benefit of mankind. As we have seen, those two pillars were later rediscovered by Manitho, the Alexandrian scribe, and put on display in a simple, um, excuse me, special temple. Egyptian records state that Thoth had authored three 36,525 manuscripts, though that is probably just another way of stating their belief that he wrote down the sum of all knowledge. The figure, 36,525, is the exact number of days in 100 years, which signified perfection or completion to the Egyptians. In summarizing all the ancient wisdom, Thoth became known as a true author of the Emerald Tablet. As a god, Thoth is the archetypal Hermes. The Hermes above, and according to traditions, the first of three incarnations of Hermes throughout history. Jewish mystics identify Thoth with Seth, who was the second son of Adam. They credit Seth with writing the Emerald Tablet, which was taken aboard the Ark by Noah. Another version says that Noah found the tablet at the foot of Mount Ararat, and the Torah does mention seven universal laws given to Noah for the benefit of all mankind, not just the Jews. After the great flood, Noah supposedly hid the tablet in a cave near Hebron, where it was later discovered by Sarah, wife of Abraham. On the other hand, the Islamic tradition equates the antediluvian Thoth with Idris, the wise man mentioned in the Quran, 
whom God exalted to a lofty station and took bodily into heaven. Idris lived some time between the eras of Adam and Noah and wrote books that revealed the divine laws to men. But some evidence from Arabia indicates Idris was really Enoch of the Jewish Old Testament. According to the ancient Arabian book of Kitat, Thoth is he whom the Hebrews call Enoch. Blessed be his soul, and that is Idris. Enoch, whose name means the initiated, is portrayed in Genesis as an angelic being who can travel, who could travel in all realms, just like all the descriptions that have come down to us of Thoth or Hermes. The seventh patriarch of creation and father of Methuselah, Enoch never died, but was translated into heaven. The apocryphal book of Enoch describes his travels to different worlds and conversations with heavenly beings, as well as his prophecies about the end of the world in which mankind must pay for profaning the wisdom handed down from heaven. In the Hebrew mystical tradition, Enoch is little Yahweh, the angel closest to God himself, and Jewish Kabbalists identify Enoch with the Metatron, the ruler of metals, and the hermetic intermediary between heaven and earth, who revealed the holy Kabbalah. That mystical system presents a religious philosophy of divine evocation based on the occult meanings of the words in the scriptures. One of the most famous books of the Kabbalah, the Sefer Yezira, describes a cosmology identical to that of the Emerald Tablet, in which all of creation emanates from the thoughts of one mind. The tablets of Enoch containing magical symbols are part of the initiatory scheme of the Order of the Golden Dawn. And yet another popular occult system that, known as the Enochian magic uses the language of the Enochian angels that was dictated to mathematician John D. in 1584 through his medium and practicing alchemist Edward Kelly. Supposedly, Dee used the information to control the tutelary spirits of various nations and according to the wishes of Queen Elizabeth in a kind of 16th century psychic warfare project. Akhenaten, the second Hermes. The second Hermes arrives on the scene sometime after the Great Flood. Following a strict genealogy, most Egypt, Egyptologists identify the second Hermes as the son of Thoth and father of Tat. At least one legend, however, describes the second Hermes as an ancient philosopher who discovered the Emerald Tablet in a cave while traveling to Ceylon. After studying the tablet, he learned how to travel both in heaven and earth and harness the forces of the above and below. He traveled throughout Asia and in the Middle East, teaching and healing, much like Bellinus did centuries later. According to the Ebers Papyrus, such a person 
actually lived around 1550 BCE. More esoteric authors associate the second Hermes with an Egyptian pharaoh by the name of Akhenaten, who ruled from 1364 to 1347 BCE. Some have dubbed Akhenaten the extraterrestrial king, and there is no doubt he possessed alien-like features. He had a thin face and a massive elongated bald head supported by a spindly neck and his drooping shoulders were pear-shaped torso lack of musculature and scrawny legs certainly made him look weak and out of place in this world. The ascetic Akhenaten was very androgynous in appearance and respected scholars have even accused him of being a homosexual or a woman masquerading as a man. Statues of Akhenaten have survived that show him naked with no male genitalia and the breasts of a woman. It is known that this freakish pharaoh claimed one of the most beautiful women in the world as his bride, the lovely Queen Nefertiti, whose family origins are still unknown to Egyptologists, and also shared the throne with a handsome young man by the name of Shemin Kher. Both of Akhenaten's co-rulers shared the title of beauty of all beauties. Akhenaten was born Amenhotep IV, meaning Amen is satisfied, but changed his name to Akhenaten, he who serves the Aten. When he broke with the priests, of Amen and set up a new monotheistic religion which recognized the visible sun as the one thing, the source of all creative energy. The new Egyptian god called the Aten or simply the disc was never personified like previous gods but was thought of as an abstract force. Pictures of the Aten show the solar disc with rays coming down from heaven and terminating the earth in dozens of tiny hands, a marvelous symbol of the one thing. The Aten is radiant energy personified, wrote one 20th century Egyptologist. That is to say, an all-pervading reality of an eminent character. Akhenaten deliberately brushed aside the distinction between the god maker of the solar disk and the solar disk itself, the distinction between creative energy and creative matter. The disk was, like all matter that falls under our senses, but a visible manifestation of something more subtle, invisible, intangible, everlasting, its essence. And the heat and light, the energy of the sun, was the manifestation of that one thing of which the visible flaming disk was yet another manifestation. Although history makes no mention of it, some writers have speculated that Akhenaten rediscovered the Emerald Tablet at the beginning of his rule as Pharaoh. According to at least one ancient papyrus, without the wisdom of Thoth, 
the pyramid of Cheops could not be built. So a great search throughout Egypt was conducted until the tablet was found. Whether or not Akhenaten beheld the actual tablet, he stands as a candidate for the second Hermes because he tried to apply the tablet's principles throughout his reign. Known as the heretic pharaoh, he espoused the revolutionary concept of living in truth and acting in natural accord with cosmic principles, he referred to the universal idea as mayat, which meant the real thing or absolute truth. The original will of the one God was expressed by his one mind. The agent of mayat was the one thing of which the physical sun or solar disk was the material expression. Some researchers believe that Akhenaten went so far as to append a phrase summarizing his view of the Aten to the original tablet. The additional rubric refers to how perfectly the Emerald Tablet explains the operation of the sun and several scholars have noted that in the history of the world, only with Akhenaten did the impersonal operation of the sun take on such a profound religious and cultural significance. In fact, a few translators of the tablet deliberately omitted this last rubric because they felt it did not fit the tablet's style and was added sometime after the original document was composed. No one denies that Akhenaten was a gifted writer. His hymn to the Aten is considered one of the best pieces of Egyptian lyric poetry ever discovered. Numerous scholars have noted its similarity in spirit to the Emerald Tablet, as well as to Psalm 104 of the Bible. A few of Akhenaten's lines reveal his passionate monotheism. How manifold it is what you have made yet hidden from the face of man. O oh, one God, like whom there is no other, you created the world according to your desire, while you were alone. All men, cattle, and wild beasts, whatever is on earth going on its feet, and what is on high flying with its wings. The principle of living in truth permeated every level of Egyptian society under Akhenaten. Most noticeable was the sudden change in the stiff and lifeless style that dominated Egyptian art for centuries. For the first time, Egyptian reliefs and paintings portrayed natural subjects such as plants and animals in exacting true life detail and traditional scenes of sterile Egyptian society were replaced by portraits of such ungodly behavior as Akhenaten, excuse me, Akhenaten kissing his wife or bouncing his daughters on his knee. In another striking break with tradition, Akhenaten ordered the abandonment of the old capital of Thebes and built a new capital city, Akhenaten, horizon of the Aten, on a desolate stretch of land along the east bank of the Nile. 
Scandalously, villas in the city of 60,000 were constructed without separate quarters for men and women, and women in particular were treated with more respect there. Akhenaten's court was one of the most open ever. His advisors were of many different nationalities, including Canites, Mycenaeans, and Philistines. Yet for the disenfranchised patriarchal priests, Akhenaten might as well have been from another planet. After just 17 years of rule, Akhenaten and Nefertiti disappeared under mysterious circumstances, and it seems likely that the former priests of Amen did away with them. Akhenaten was well aware of the brewing unrest among the priests and might have taken the precaution of hiding the emerald tablet or passing it on to an enlightened individual outside the Egyptian court. Some scholars have suggested that confident Confidant was a man by the name of Moses. According to Exodus, Moses fled to the land of the Kenites, which is what the subjects of Akhenaten were called. In the open court of the time, its subjects of Akhenaten, oh, excuse me. In the open court of the time, it can be assumed that Moses would have conferred with Pharaoh many times on behalf of his people. In Moses and Monotheism by Alfred A. Knopf, 1939, Sigmund Freud suggested that Moses was a contemporary of Akhenaten, somehow appropriated the Pharaoh's idea of one supreme God and brought the new religion to the Jews. Similar sentiments were expressed by renowned Egyptologist Jan Asman in Moses the Egyptian. Perhaps the link between the tablet and Christianity is more direct than anyone could have possibly guessed. For there is an old legend that says the second Hermes gave the emerald tablet to Miriam sister of Moses, and she placed it in the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. In any case, the heretic pharaoh was eventually replaced by a 10-year-old boy, probably Akhenaten's son-in-law, whose name, Tukhenaten, servant of the Aten, was changed to Tutankhamen, servant of Amen, after Akhenaten's murder. The child's pharaoh's actions were tightly controlled by the fundamentalist priests who restored the capital to Thebes, destroyed the city of Akhenaten, and erased all traces of the new religion. Unlike the magnificent golden money, mummy of King Tut, the bodies of Akhenaten and Nefertiti were never found. Archaeologist Sir Alan Gardner surmised that Akhenaten's body had been torn to pieces and thrown to the dogs. The only written references to the Aten after the death of Akhenaten were enigmatic allusions that associated the solar disk with the Great Sphinx on the Giza Plain. Bolinus, the third Hermes. The third Hermes, 
the thrice greatest Hermes, referred to in the Emerald Tablet as we know it, came with the second millennium. He is none other than our own Bellinus, Apollonius of Tyana. Bellinus discovered the tablet in a cave where it might have been hidden by Alexander the Great on his way to Mesopotamia. In any case, it was Bellinus who absorbed the tablet's teachings and once again brought them to the light of human consciousness. The earliest known written translation of the Emerald Tablet is an appendix to an Arabian book known as the Book of Bellinus, the Wise on Causes, written around 650 CE and probably based on Bellinus's Alexandrian writings. Another, <clears throat> another Arabic text written by alchemist Jabir Hayyan around 800 CE contains a copy of the Emerald Tablet and also gives Bellinus' work as the source. In all these texts, Bellinus describes finding the tablet in the tomb of Hermes. Bellinus spent many years as a teacher and a writer in Alexandria, and it is from that city that his books about the tablet made their way to Arabia. While it is extremely difficult at this late date to name the single true author of the Emerald Tablet, an even more basic question remains. Was its author a man or a god? The answer down through the ages has always been both. And whether portrayed as a man or a god, Hermes is always the revealer of celestial knowledge hidden to mankind and is the ultimate spiritual guide, ready to trick us into following his lead. In many ways, Hermes is like a spirit that reincarnates itself through time to guide us in our struggle toward enlightenment, showing up in every generation, whether we like it or not. That must have been what Henry Wadsworth Longfellow fellow had in mind when he wrote the poem, Hermes Tresmegistus. In 1882, the celebrated poet finished the lyrical ode just a few weeks before he died. Was he one or many, merging, name and fame in one, like a stream to which, converging, many streamlets run? Who shall call his dreams fallacious, who has searched or sought? all the unexplored and spacious universe of thought. Who in his own skull confiding shall with rule and line mark the borderland dividing human and divine? Tresmegistus, three times greatest, how thy name sublime has descended to this latest progeny of time. History of the Tablet Like the exalted life of Hermes Tresmegistus, the history of the Emerald Tablet is clouded in myths and legends. Several contemporary authors have even suggested that the tablet was a gift from extraterrestrials or originated in the lost civilization of Atlantis. A few have postulated that Thoth, 
either as alien or Atlantean, wrote the tablet 36,000 years ago and was incarnated several times over the centuries to propagate its principles. According to other sources, the tablet was created in Egypt about 10,000 years ago, though some historians point out to date around 3000 BCE when the Phoenicians settled on the Syrian coast. Egyptian papyri dating as far back as 2000 BCE contain many of the same phrases, phrases and principles stated in the Emerald Tablet, including references to the one mind, one thing, and the correspondences between the above and below. One papyrus known as an invocation to Hermes, which dates from Hellenistic Egypt, actually mentions the tablet. I know your names in the Egyptian tongue and your true name as it is written on the holy tablet in the holy space at Hermopolis, where you did have your birth. Wherever it came from, the Emerald Tablet contains an extremely succinct summary of the Hermetic tradition, undoubtedly the oldest spiritual tradition in the West. The generic quality of its concepts allowed the tablet to permeate the foundations of human civilization. And while no direct evidence links the tablet to Eastern religions, it shares uncanny uncanny similarities in concepts and terminology with Taoism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. In the West, the Emerald Tablet found a home not only in the pagan tradition, but in all three of the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Many of the tenets of the Gnostics an influential religious sect of late antiquity seems taken directly from the Emerald Tablet. The Gnostics focus not on faith and con contrition, but on the attainment of direct knowledge of reality through private psychological and meditative exercises. They sought purification of their own personalities so they might develop gnosis or direct knowledge of ultimate truth. And they held that light and darkness and good and evil are equally eternal and both part of the wonder of creation. All is one was their creed. More modern spiritual movements, movements such as Freemasonry, the Rosicrucians, the Theosophy, the Golden Dawn, Ikankar, Fourth Way, and many New Age philosophies are also based on ideas first revealed in the Emerald Tablets. The reverence with which these diverse groups hold the tablet is exemplified in the following paragraph from Freemasonry's Morals and Dogma. He who desires to attain the understanding of the grand word and the possession of the great secret ought carefully to read the hermetic philosophers and will undoubtedly attain initiation as others have done 
but he must take for the key of their allegories the single dogma of Hermes contained in his table of emerald. In the so-called hermetic arts, the tablet is the basis of magical invocation and the doctrine of sympathetic magic in which the powers from the above are drawn down to earth and fixed in talismans or statues. It is also the source of images seen on tarot cards and other divinatory tools. Those same images show up in dreams and imagination of people undergoing psychological transformation, and the tablet has become an important reference tool in the fields of analytical and transpersonal psychology. Without doubt, the Emerald Tablet was the inspiration behind alchemy for centuries. Many medieval alchemists hung a copy of the tablet on the wall of their laboratories and consistent and constantly referred to the secret formula it contained. The alchemists really believed that the Emerald Tablet revealed truths too powerful for most people to handle and invented secret alphabets and coded phrases in which to discuss their progress so the uninitiated would not comprehend the true spiritual nature of their quest. While the alchemist's pure spiritual contribution is just being rediscovered, historians of science have long conceded that alchemy's experimental approach gave rise to the modern disciplines of chemistry and physics. However, the legacy of the Emerald Tablet is much more than just subtle influences on the development of our religious and scientific philosophies. It is a living document that speaks to each of us directly about our personal transformation. Indeed, the Emerald Tablet speaks to the whole world. It is the cryptic epitome of the alchemical opus, says Jungian anal ooh, excuse me, analysis Dr. Edward Ed Edinger, a psychedelic guru, Terence McKenna says that the Tablet of Hermes presents a formula for a holographic matrix that is mirrored in the human mind. Whatever one chooses to believe about it, summed up John and Caitlin Matthews in The Western Way, there is no getting away from the fact that the Emerald Tablet is one of the most profound and important documents to have come down to us. It has been said more than once that it contains the sum of all knowledge, for those to be able to understand it. So while its roots may be lost in history, the words of the Emerald Tablet have survived so that each of us alive today has a chance at true spiritual breakthrough denied to generations of previous seekers. Whether Alexander the Great passed it down to us or it was created by some ancient ghostwriter, we do have the Arabic and Latin translations of the original document with which to work. The Corpus Hermeticum. The spirit of Hermes lives on not in the Emerald Tablet, but also in the 17th documents, the 17 documents containing teachings ascribed to him and known as the Corpus Hermeticum. These treatises expand on the principles of the Emerald Tablet 
and appeared to be records of intimate conversations between Hermes and his disciples. For over three centuries, these writings were thought to be church, were thought by the church to be very ancient and were held in the highest esteem. The church fathers believed they lent support to Christian doctrines, and it was even suggested that the writings of Hermes replaced those of Aristotle in the schools. So it caused a great scandal when fundamentalist scholars in the 17th century declared these documents forgeries written by the semi-Christians. How did the Hermetic literature, which had been embraced by the early followers of Christ, come to be condemned by Renaissance Christians? One possible explanation was given by G.R.S. Mead in his definitive book, Thrice Greatest Hermes. The church fathers appealed to the authority of antiquity that and to a tradition that had never been called in question in order to show that they taught nothing fundamentally new, that in brief, they taught on main points what Hermes had taught. They lived in days too proximate to that tradition to have ventured on bringing charges of plagiarism and forgery against it without exposing themselves to a crushing rejoinder from men who were still the hearers of its living voice and possessors of its written word. While Hermes is never mentioned in the Bible, his counterpart Enoch is mentioned several times. In fact, None of the Christian scholars from the 17th century would have denied that Enoch was a real person who achieved union with God. That Enoch and Hermes might be the same person was never considered, though the idea was accepted by Islamic scholars. In the mystic sense, summarized by 19th century French theorist Antonin Artaud, Thoth or the Egyptian Hermes was the symbol of the divine mind. He was incarnated thought, the living word, the logos of Plato and the word of the Christians. So the Corpus Hermeticum really contains the ancient Egyptian doctrine of which traces can be discovered from the hieroglyphics which still cover the monuments of Egypt. Actually, whether or not the Corpus Hermeticum was written by the hand of Hermes is a moot point, since the Emerald Tablet actually encourages this sort of plagiarism by espousing the idea of the one mind, which anyone can access through proper mental attitude. This one mind is the mind of Hermes, the mind of our higher selves, and anyone who reaches it can write from the perspective of Hermes Trismegistus. It is a tradition that goes all the way back to Thoth, who was said to inspire people with direct perception of truth. May Thoth write to you daily, utters the 3,500-year-old papyrus of Ani. As we approach the third millennium, Thoth's insights are being realized by more people than ever before. The modern Corpus Hermeticum includes spiritual fiction, guides to personal transformation, channeled works, and even messages brought back by those experiencing near-death visions. 
Additionally, many people have created a per personal corpus hermeticum in private journals or diaries in which they record thoughts that seem to come from a higher source. In today's world, the guidance of Hermes is being sought by more people every day. In fact, in the following chapter, we too will attempt to directly contact the eternal Hermes. Chapter 3, A Conversation with Hermes One way to grasp the meaning of the Emerald Tablet is to try to communicate with its author using a psychological method known as active imagination. This is the same method used by those who composed the Corpus Hermeticum centuries ago and their impassioned treatises were also attempts to elaborate on the meaning of the tablet. All we have to do to achieve this state of mind is to imagine what it would be like if we could corner the mercurial Hermes and get him to come back to the modern world to answer a few questions. Traditionally, rituals to invoke Hermes have involved a journey or vision quest that incorporates all four archetypal elements, earth, water, air, and fire. Therefore, let us begin our journey just before dawn in a lush forest, fully towering trees and vegetation, where the odor of the earth is strong. There is just enough light for us to make out the footpath before us as we move through the densest part of the forest and suddenly step out onto a rocky beach where the rolling waves of the ocean drown out all other sounds and a deep red sun peeks over a watery horizon. We pause a moment to savor the beauty of the dawn and survey our surroundings. We can barely see a zigzagging footpath winding up the sheer cliff to our right. We are at the base of a jagged mountain whose peak is shrouded in clouds. We embark on a treacherous trail and by midday reach a grassy outcropping halfway up the mountain. A refreshing breeze blows from the sea and as we venture to the edge of the cliff, we are greeted by a spectacular view of the ocean and forest below. The combination of sun and wind is invigorating and we lie down in the grass for a moment to enjoy it. Unfortunately, we cannot linger since we must reach our destination before dark. As we press on, the path becomes steeper and more difficult then suddenly widens and turns downward into a small canyon. In the subdued light of the canyon, we spot a flickering orange light coming from a large cave. Oddly, the more we think about our destination, the quicker we are propelled along the path and we reach the cave in no time. In front of the cave, a giant bonfire burns, illuminating the entrance. Before we are two great, before us are two great wooden doors with crystal doorknobs, and we carefully open the one to our right. The heavy door opens only partially, 
And after we squeeze through, it slams shut behind us with a thud that echoes through the brilliantly lit inner chamber. As our eyes adjust to the brightness, we notice that everything is pure white. The floors, walls, and ceiling are all uniformly white, and it is impossible to discern any colors or even to determine the shape of the room. The only identifiable object is a massive golden cube at the very center. The metallic monolithic towers over us and must be at least 12 feet on each end. As we approach, electricity fills the air and tiny sparks start shooting out from the empty space above the cube. Before our eyes, the sparks coalesce into a hovering box of lightning, a cube of diamond white light that hangs suspended well above the solid cube on the floor. Between the two, a pinkish vapor forms and then splits like a silken veil to reveal the tall figure of a man. The man is taller than any mortal and bathed in a shimmering greenish light. As he materializes before us, his body is transparent for a few seconds and his heart and brain can be seen pulsating and radiant. We watch as his heart transforms into an ibis bird and his brain into a gleaming emerald. But his flesh soon takes form, concealing those inner treasures. Finally, flowing robes of deep, deep blue and yellow envelop him and golden sandals appear on his feet. He is crowned with a purple cloth turban emblazoned with the solar disk resting in the cradle of a crested moon. In his left hand, he holds a fluttering winged staff entwined with two hissing serpents. The man pushes the intimidating staff towards us, all the while gazing intently in our eyes. His stare is not harsh nor arrogant, but full of simple wisdom. He then speaks in a dignified yet benevolent voice. I am thrice great Hermes, son of the divine, the messenger uniting superiors and inferiors, and their union is in me as it is in the one mind. Hail Hermes, we reply in unison. Hermes pulls his caduceus wand back to his side and glances down at us. How do we strike up a conversation with this kind of being? Just how openly will this secretive, contradictory man slash God answer our questions? We start with something that has mystified philosophers for centuries. You call yourself thrice great, but what is your real name? By Hermes, you know me because that is the one third I have chosen to show you. But I am truly three times Hermes, an eternal spirit who exists in, on all levels of creation. Now, I, now am I embodied between the above and the below, although I speak not to you, but through you, for together we are of one mind. 
Tell us how we can be of one mind if you have your thought and we have ours. If that were true, we wouldn't need to question you. We are all of one mind, though it has not yet dawned on you, and all questions and all answers are known to the one mind, thus known to you. Yet your sight is veiled, and you perceive only the shadows and not their source. I speak from the light as one who has seen, and though residing in shadow and light, we are still of one mind. We mean no insult, but why should we believe you? After all, you are known as a notorious trickster. To trick those who hide is no deceit. Some of those who are foolish or fearful may even enter into the light and see with their own eyes and verify these truths themselves and finally serve the alchemy of their being. Nor would it be possible to lie when speaking of the highest things, for they are the thoughts of only one mind. You keep mentioning this one mind. Do you mean God? The gods you worship are all part of the one mind, but because you name, you must name your gods, you cannot know God. By naming God, you only create yet another God. Only by being in the ineffable presence of the divine can you know the one God. For that reason, I do not call God by name, but refer only to where God can be found in the one mind. If God is in the one mind, which is above, then the devil must be in the one thing, which is below. Aren't the above and below simply what we conceive of as heaven and hell? Such labels are inventions that serve worldly ends, for the true above and below are living things beyond description. In my tablet, I have revealed all that can be spoken of these unlimited regions. The above is the abode of one mind. And the below is the abode of one thing. You need know nothing more because nothing more is knowable. You cannot label the ineffable. Work instead with the tiny spark of consciousness of which you are possessed. That spark can be fanned into a blazing gnosis that burns away the falsity of your tragic self-deception. Thereafter, can you verify yourself that of from which I speak. You can behold the one mind. You can touch the one thing. You mean we can travel in the above and below as you do? How can that be? We are mere mortals. Listen carefully. Thought is a bubble of being that erupts on the fabric of reality through the pattern I revealed in my tablet. Thus, you are as mortal as your thoughts, and it is your notion of heaven and hell that keeps you earthbound because it weighs you down with fear and duplicity. The things whereof I speak are everywhere under your nose. You have only to reach out and touch them. But out of your arrogance, you have denied the one mind, and out of your fear, you have desecrated the one thing. 
What hope is there for us to change our thoughts and rid ourselves of arrogance if it is the nature of mankind to behave this way and has been for thousands of years? The only hope for mankind is the alchemy revealed in my living tablet. But be not mistaken, the alchemy of which I speak is working with your seemingly valueless thoughts and feelings to to refine them to operate on all levels with the same force with which they work in the divine mind. In truth, all you are and all I am is thoughts and feelings, yet all thoughts are from just one mind, and all feelings are in just one thing. Therefore, your consciousness is both a part and the whole. Know that the one thing within you is your chaotic feelings, the rejected energy that can drive your transformation. Know that the union of thought and feeling is like a stone you can carry anywhere. For this intelligence of the heart is everywhere, just one thing. If through alchemy we are able to overcome our ignorance and change our beliefs, then how do we travel in these wondrous realms? Once your thoughts are purified, the ascent and descent are as natural as breathing. Since the above is subtle and the below is gross, the subtlest part of matter is soul. The subtlest part of soul is spirit. And the subtlest part of spirit is God. To travel to these realms, you need only to change the density of your thoughts. And by weighing, shall you be judged? First, you must free yourself from the roots of denial which keep you earthbound, which is the lead of your existence, and invert them into the roots of heaven, planted in the golden light above. Then, To become subtler, rid yourself of fear and follow your lightest thoughts as they rise. To become denser, seek sensation and expression and follow your heaviest thoughts as they plummet. But do not linger in heaven, my son. On the earth is where your work takes place. For in the rarefied atmosphere of consciousness, thoughts are actions and all thoughts are in just one mind. And all results are in just one thing. Yet we are afraid to leave earth to travel through the realms as you. How can we not be afraid? Fear is great for it destroys all subtle things and makes lead of gold. You cannot ascend and still have fear for fear is darkness and belongs to the heaviest part of unknowing. To rise above fear, you must rise above the part of you that is in darkness, whatever that may be. Look in the deepest of your rooms, for there lies the gold of your being. And though it pains you, you have to excise this luminous metal from the crevices where it has accumulated. Then release this treasure to the light of consciousness and follow it as it flies upward and merges with the sun to the place where where total knowledge burns forever, where fear cannot follow. There, all things will be clear to you in the eternal moment before you return. For you will behold the fountain of fountains and see the one mind becoming the one thing.
What is this dark and chaotic one thing we fear so much that it holds us to earth? You should not fear the one thing, for you have dominion over it. It is the nothing that is something. The same substance of which your dreams are made. But your fear has turned it into your nightmare. And only through its dissolution can you reclaim your power and dream anew. For just as your dreams are fashioned by your hidden mind, so is the world, world dreamt by the hidden mind of God. Therefore, the thoughts of the one mind are your reality, and the presence of the one thing is your dream, and the dreamer and his dream are always one. So which is more important, the one thing or the one mind? <laughs> you surely try my patience. Do you not see that the one mind and the one thing are one? They are different aspects of the same thing, though one is above and the other below. Mind and matter appear as two in the mirror of existence, but they flow in, into one another as one. Like the fountain of fountains feeding on itself, so does one continually pass into the other. The one mind becomes the one thing, and out of the one thing comes the one mind. They are, are and always were both one. It seems like the universe is like a gigantic lava lamp in which the light bulb of the one mind heats up the gooey one thing in a display of continually changing shapes, rising and falling, rising and falling. What's the point? You do not see the point since you are always forgetting that the universe is not for your entertainment. It does not serve you. You serve it. That is the only point. You are nothing but a vehicle of the minuscule light within you. And that light is part of the agenda, but not you. Yet despite your missing the point, I have revealed to you where to look for the one thing and how to fashion it to anything you desire through the formula of the whole universe. Do not disappoint me, human. You can best serve the universe through the sacrifice of the one thing in you to perfect it and offer it up for your glory and the glory of God, for you and God are also and always one. I want to read that again. For you and God are also and always one. Just what is this light that is more important than us? You are bound to earth because of the gravity of your soul. So be thankful for your spark of spirit and the consciousness that has enlightened you. Else you will be weighed down even further into the darkness of matter. For between the greater light and the greater darkness, you are suspended. Yet, if you merge with the pure light within you, you join the whole universe. For the light is freely distributed and penetrates the darkness everywhere. The light within you is the same light that divides the darkness. For all light is one, just as all darkness is one, and even apart, they are still one. So this light from the one mind penetrating the darkness of the one thing is the great pattern you speak of in your tablet. 
There is only one pattern in the operation of sun. By fire will you be set free. By water will you reclaim your power. By air will you discover your inner worth. By earth will you realize its potential. In your dissolution, you will see the pattern encompassing you and know what to do. For this pattern originated with the birth of the universe and is sealed in time and space everywhere. Only then will you be allowed to contribute to the universe. Only then will the child of your imagination be allowed to grow. For the secret quickens only proper matter, which even then must be repeatedly enthroned and made pure enough to join with the subtlest of the subtle in the last coagulation. In this seven-step pattern, I have revealed all, yet all is only one. How can there be these seven steps to the pattern and yet everything is one? <clears throat> there are seven steps on the ladder of becoming. And this is the pattern from which the formula for ascent is derived. But having reached the seventh step, the eighth step is no longer on the ladder and you stand beyond its pattern. This is the eighth sphere, which is the cosmic stone where light and dark mind and matter are eternally one. Only from this point can be seen the greater pattern, which I shall now envision, though thus do I take leave of you since thought is my chariot. But what I see I reveal, which is all the science of the whole universe, for from the eighth I only see one. Followed by streamers of greenish mist, the great Hermes fades away into nothingness. And we suddenly find ourselves back in forest again with only the lingering light of his presence to guide us. For each of us, that light is the green beacon of the Emerald Tablet. And in the following six chapters, we will examine each section of the tablet in turn to discover how to use the insights Hermes has given us to transform the very fabric of our existence.